theyeshiva.net. The Mittler Rebbe, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose name was Abdev Ben. To be sure, he was actually the first Lubavitcher Rebbe because the Alter Rebbe never lived on Lubavitch as a Rebbe, although he was there as a child for some of his formative years. Had a derech that prohibited his spilus. That means he had uh, intolerance and maybe even an abhorrence for demonstrative passion. In other words, he was a Hasidic Rebbe, and it goes without saying that Hasid is all about passion, but he believed that the passion is supposed to be entirely on the inside. And on the outside, it's got to be completely contained, controlled, measured. Um, we know of the Middle Rebbe personally that his demeanor was so controlled that he was like a, like a statue. He didn't budge at all. Our Rebbe once described at a Fabrengen that he had this pointed hat that the, he was sitting completely still, motionless in meditation and from the tip of the hat sweat was pouring. Sweat, which means that he must have been perspiring profusely but you saw no physical motion and he expected this of his Hasidim as well Hasidim of the Mittler Rebbe the second Lubavitcher Rebbe who permitted themselves uh, external passion were distanced by the Rebbe he, he didn't want it so there's a famous story about a Hasid who I think it was in the city of Kremenchuk but I could be wrong that the Mittler Rebbe was there for Purim once and there was a question of who would read the Megillah and there were various candidates and the Middle Rebbe was given a list of the candidates and he chose a particular Balkaida, Balkriya, who was a Malamed, a school teacher. Well, school teacher. He taught Nacheder. I can't exactly call him a school teacher. Didn't have blackboards and chalk and a principal and a tuition board. It was a Cheder. Nobody got rich as a Malamed. And the Rebbe asked him to read the Megillah. So this Malamed, who was a very Hasidish Yid, and to be sure, in the old country, the biggest Hasid in town was usually the Malamed. He was also the poorest Hasid in town, but the Malamedim were, were literally holy. They were, you know, the, in the Hasidic world, there was the, the Rav, the Sheikhit, the Mashpia, and the Malamed. Those were the personalities in the community, the, the leadership. And the Malamed was a shy, humble, sit in the back of the shul kind of a person who frequently knew much more Torah than anybody could even imagine. And he was a Hasidish Yid who taught children Aleph Beis. So this Malam was reading the Megillah. And he gets, of course, to the point where Haman is in Ahasuerus's bedroom, in effect. And Ahasuerus says to Haman, What should be done to a person whom the king wishes to honor? So the Apostle goes on to say, So Haman thinks to himself, whom could the king possibly wish to honor Yehseb many more than myself? Haman immediately assumes that Achashverosh wants to honor him. And of course we all know what happened next. He ended up honoring Mordechai as he would have wished to be honored himself. So the Malamed reads this Pasuk. Haman says to himself, To whom would the king wish to perform honor Yehseb many more than myself? And he couldn't control himself. And he shouted, Feh! Klipe! Feh! Disgusting, klipe. Klipe means evil, the opposite of good. He was right in the middle of the Megillah. He finished reading the Megillah. 
And there was no doubt in anybody's mind that the next day he wasn't going to get the opportunity to read again. The Rebbe would not tolerate this kind of lack of self-control. Comes the next morning and they're waiting for the Rebbe to make an indication that he wants a different person to read. But he makes no such indication. And in fact, the Mulamid reads the next day. I'm assuming that by day he managed to prepare himself before he read that Pusik that it shouldn't be a similar outburst. And the Hasidim was surprised because they knew that the Rebbe normally was not very tolerant of external displays of emotion. And it was very sincere, it was genuine, he wasn't acting. That's how he felt, disgusting. How preoccupied with self can a human being possibly be? After davening, the Rebbe announced, the Mitla Rebbe announced, Mendaftach Geben Megillagelt, the Jewish tradition that you give Megillagelt. Megillagelt is that people put down money, whatever amount, as a gift to the person who read the Megillah. It's, it's just one of those traditions you give money to the Balkanian. They're supposed to take it. I've yet to meet the Balkanian who actually takes it, but this is the tradition. And the middle level pulled out a golden arendel. A golden arendel, let's say, modern times is a $100 bill, or if there would be such a thing, a $1,000 bill. It was a substantial amount of money. In that shul, and that put him, there were a hundred well-to-do Jews, wealthy Yidin. When they heard that the Rebbe put down a golden arendel, a golden coin, each of them had to match the Rebbe, and this Jew became wealthy in a day. And the Rebbe explained that this Malamed had a bracha from his father, the Alter Rebbe, to be wealthy, Ashiris. But he was making no keli for the bracha. He was doing nothing to bring the bracha to himself. He was a Malamed. He never bought a lottery ticket. So the Rebbe said, I wanted to fulfill my father's bracha, which is why I overlooked his outburst. I allowed him to read the Megillah by day as well, so that we can give him the generous Megillagelt Umisham Nesashe so that my father's bracha should be realized. If you're familiar with Hasidus, Tanya, you've heard the terms Klipa, Sitra Achro. These are basic terms that denote the other side, the opposite of Kedusha. In Tanya chapter 6, the Alphabet refers to Sitra Achro as Tzadacha, the other side. And he asserts, that to be on the other side, you don't have to be bad. You have to just be not good. One of the most powerful assertions of the Tanya, and frankly one of the most un- unsettling assertions of the Tanya, is that there's no such thing as neutral. In Nigudetet, in Halacha, in Jewish law, things are divided into three categories. Choiv, Isid, and Rishus. What you must do, what you're not allowed to do, and what's left to your discretion. This is how Tanya was given to people on earth. Primius HaTayda, Soyed, Kabbalah, Hasidus, is revealing a higher dimension of Tayda. And I've often said that you can describe it as Tayda Bashamayim, learning Tayda as Tayda is studied in Ganeidin. When you look at reality from a perspective of a soul in Ganeidin, you, th- you see things very differently because you don't have the same kind of challenges. And from that perspective, there's only two things, not three. To quote the former President Bush, either you're with us or against us. That's how. Kabbalah and Hasidis define good and evil. If you're not good, you're bad. Period. You don't have to be bad to be bad. You have to just be not good. What is good? Two criteria. Number one, bottle let's say is barach. Humble before God. And number two, because bottle let's say is barach, because one is humble before God, shechina shechina, the shechina is present. To be klipa, you don't have to be evil and cruel. You have to just be self-absorbed. Selfish is klipa. A being that's not bottled for Hashem clearly does not allow the Shechina to rest because the Shechina can only rest where you invite him in. That's Klipa. That's Sitra Achra, the other side. 
So things which are quite benign and not by our measure bad things are mystically bad or they draw off, they, they're, they're sustained, they get their life from a, a negative source. Because negativity and mysticism doesn't mean a murderer or a thief. Negativity in mysticism means egocentric. Negativity in mysticism means selfish. To be bad in the spiritual world, all you have to do is pay attention to yourself. Now please don't tell that to the wrong people. There are people whose whole identity is self-worship. Narcissism is not even something to be ashamed of in our culture. But narcissism is klipa. Preoccupation with self, whether it's with appearance or with the acquisition of wealth or, or, or material possessions or any kind of preoccupation with self is feklipa because it's not about God, it's about me. Now, I'm not a very big chassid and I don't want to give the impression that this is simple for me. It's not simple for me. It's a struggle. And it's a struggle by no means that I win every day. But, I don't therefore want to re- define the terms. In other words, the fact that I or many of us struggle with the definition of Sitrach and Klippa, nobody likes to be told that anything you do that's not good is bad. It's very uncomfortable. We'd much rather hear anything that I do that's not bad is good. But that's the mystical, that's the spiritual, that's the Torah Bashmaim definition. If it's not bottled to Hashem and therefore inviting the Shekhinah to rest, it's the opposite of bottled to Hashem. In other words, the essence of Klippa is any being whose center is itself. And the essence of Kedusha is any being whose center is God. Or to say it in a more applied way, any being whose center of self is Hakara Satev, is the submission and the recognition of the dependency upon God. Any being that denies that dependency to whatever measure, to whatever degree, even if they know there's a God, but they sort of say, you know, Sundays, Tuesdays and Thursdays are mine, is Klippa. So the definition of sitra akhra is the other side. The other side means not bottle to Hashem and therefore allowing the Shekhinah to manifest. Klipa, which means a peel or a shell, connotes the following. Everything has a spark of God. If it didn't have a spark of God, it wouldn't exist. The spark of God wants to run to God. The desire of the spark of God to run to God is the two points we just mentioned. Bittle to Hashem, which invites Shekhinah to manifest. The klipa, the peel, the shell, doesn't allow the God within itself to emerge and return to HaKadosh Baruch. In other words, Rabbi Yisai, klipa means an entity who has somehow figured out how to live the following lie. I am entirely dependent upon God and I am wholly dedicated to deny that truth. That's klipa. I live from God but insist that I don't need Him. I'm dependent upon God and somehow talk my way into or talk my way out of acknowledging that dependency. If something takes from Hashem, from HaKadosh Baruch and acknowledges that it's taken from Him, that's the bittle. That's the cleave for the Shekhinah to manifest. But if something takes from HaKadosh Baruch and says, no, I'm on my own, I exist and besides for me, I need nothing outside of myself, that's the definition of Sitra Akhra, that's the definition of a klipa. In Tanya, 
in chapter 22, which is really the Klippa chapter. <laughs> I don't know how many of you are in love with this subject, but if you want to read the place in Tanya which is dedicated to Klippa directly is Tanya chapter 22. Yeah, of course, you have many other places, the end of chapter 1, chapter 6 and 7 and 8, talk about Klippa. But the chapter that, so to speak, gives you the sense of how Klippa develops and how, what, how Klippa defines itself as chapter 22. He says something very important. Klippa is not an atheist. Klippa doesn't say there isn't a God. Klippa doesn't even say that this God is not a creator. Klippa acknowledges its dependency upon God. But Klippa leaves a space for itself. Klippa says, yes, there is a God. He made me, but right now I'm on my own. He checks in on me once a month, once a year, once a century, once a millennia, but I'm on my own. Klippa says, Hashem, the creator, is the Lakad Alakai. He's the God of gods. He's the source of all things. But I am not constantly and intimately dependent upon Him. I have a certain measure of independence, of separateness from Him. That's the definition, that's the trademark of Klippa. As a result, things that many of us would consider benign, you know, not kosher and not treif, by Tanya's definition, turn out to be treif. Because if there is no submission, direct recognition of dependency upon Hashem, bitl, that's Klippa. Um... In Hasidus it is brought that there is, of course, a concept of kfira. Kfira means atheism, anatheism, which is tiny chapter 24. He brings the parsley that says, to deny God and say He doesn't exist. So Hasidus holds, and by the way, for those who want to look it up, it's in Derech Mitzvah Achtas Hashem Gimel, that atheism is not part of the divine creation. When God created the world, He created, of course, Kedusha. That means energies, light, that should be directly bottled to Hashem and therefore Hashem's presence is revealed. And then something called Noiga. Noiga means a klipa that knows God and has a degree of submission to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but has a small sense of separateness from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then there's klipas Tmeyas Lagamri, the absolute evil klipas, which are not only a little bit aware of themselves, but they're opposed to God, they do things against the wishes of God and so forth. And if I understand it correctly, in the spiritual realms there is only Noiga. The only place where you have Shalash Kibbutz Agamri is down here. Atheism is not part of the design. When Hashem created the world, He created only three things, Achtus and Shituf or Noiga and Avedezara. Kfira, atheism is man-made. I think it said that it's created by Pare or by Sancherev. Atheism is something that God gave humanity a possibility to entertain, and uh, when man entertained it, they created the phenomenon of atheism, what we call in Hebrew, koifer bi'ikir, a denier of the ikir, of HaKadosh Baruch. Let me give you two personalities as an illusion, as a framework. Nebuchadnezzar Harasha, who destroyed the first base of Mikdash, and Titus, Titus, the Roman Caesar, the Roman Caesar, Malchus Harshah, as he's often referred to, who destroyed the second base of Mikdash. Nebuchadnezzar was a Russian Medusha, he was an evil man, he was a bloodthirsty man, the Tadach calls him a dog, for more reasons than one. And by the way, Taylor doesn't uh, consider dogs very lofty creations, they have a much higher opinion of a wolf than of a dog, but I don't want to cause more trouble than I must. <coughs> I've already created enough problems tonight. But Nebuchadnezzar was a superstitious man, he was a pagan, he worshipped many gods, he worshipped himself above all else, but he was superstitious. He had a sense that there's stuff out there that are beyond him, and he was afraid of it. And as a consequence, 
as much as he hated the Jews, <coughs> and as much as he destroyed the divide, the, God, the Jewish temple, he respected them. He brought them into his cabinet. He gave them positions of prominence. He wanted their wisdom. Because he had a sense that there was something about the Jews that was special. Not just because they were more intelligent, because they were in touch with higher forces. Titus, Titus was an atheist. He just didn't believe in anything. He was a cynic. He mocked. The Gemara tells the story how he stuck a dagger into the curtain that separated the holy from the holy of holies and it began to bleed and he took the dagger and said, look, I killed your God. The Gemara in Gittin tells an extensive story how he was essentially killed by a mosquito. Now is not the time for the story. But Titus wasn't only evil. He had absolutely no sense of anything other than himself in the physical world. He wasn't even superstition. He wasn't even paranoia. There was arrogance. And the difference between these two personalities, um, on the one hand, talking about their evil, they were both terribly evil men. But in terms of their relationship with God, they were very different. And there's an idea from the Alter Rebbe, which I have shared with you on previous occasions. The source of it, as far as I can recall, is in Yudl Chitrik Sefer, Hashim is Dvarim. And I'm sure that uh, Rabbi Glitzenstein brings it in his Eitzit Sipuri Chabad. And by the way, people are harassing me for my sources. <laughs> if you want to know where I tell my, take my stories, why don't you at least look in the basic sources? Take out a Sefer that told us, take out Eitzit Chabad, take out a base Rebbe. You don't find the stories there, you're welcome to ask me my source. But if you do no legwork, I'm not a secretary. <laughs> it's not the way it works. But Eitzit Sipuri Chabad, the story appears as well. That the Alter Rebbe is quoted as having said, that the Gemara says <coughs> that God Almighty, that the that God Almighty take away the temptation for idol worship. They saw Jewish people's inability to contain themselves, and the world was falling into paganism uncontrollably, and they davened that the taiva, the desire for a desire, should be removed. And it was removed. That's why today we look at idolaters consider them fools. But then the Alter Rebbe says, so what happened to that power? That desire, that lust, that passion had to go someplace. And the Alter Rebbe said, it is gilek givarning guilt. It was put into money. Instead of people having desire for idol worship, they have desire for the, for the accruing, for the collecting, for the hoarding of wealth. And the Alter Rebbe adds some very powerful words. I'm not sure it was worth it. Avedizar is a terrible thing. It's the worst I've ate in the Torah. There's never an exception to the rule of Avedizar. Nobody is ever justified in worshipping idols under any conditions. Not even a Navi and a Rasha and all the rest. But an idolator is a spiritual person. They have a sense of God. They just see him as the God of gods. And that they're involved in less uh, uh, encompassing entities. Money is godless. It's absolutely without any sense of anything above itself. And on, on some level, that's the difference between a superstitious pagan and a cynical atheist. Their whole, I'm not trying to celebrate pagans. I'm simply trying to say that when a person has some sense of spirituality, they are many steps away. In other words, terribly misled. But they have a concept of a higher thing. And now it's a question of identifying Hashem Alakein Hashem Achad, that there are no independent forces except God. An atheist has absolutely no sensitivity whatsoever. But according to Hasidus, God never created that. He created Achtus, he created Klippas Naiga or Shitov, and he created Avedizara. But the idea of a Koifer Be'ikir, one who simply believes in nothing, God obviously had to create that possibility, otherwise man could not have 
produced it, but uh, it was man-made. Human beings had to create the phenomenon of a person who has absolutely no, no sense of something above himself at all. Now getting back to the uh, Maimon here, we are in the midst of discussing Klippa. And we have defined Klippa as the ultimate ingrate. I need you, I'm going to lead from you and convince myself and the world that I'm independent of you. That's the entire definition. Klippa leeches from God and struts around saying, me? I'm my own God. I don't need him. So the mysticism gets very complicated. How can you take from God and at the same time deny? You know, last week, when we read the first part of this Maimed, I gave you the physical example of an illness. We all carry around bacteria and viruses and all kinds of other uh, little tiny creepy crawly organisms that can bring all kinds of illness to us. And our body just keeps them in check <clears throat> until we're weak. When we're weak and we're sick, uh, we're weak and we're hungry or cold, we get, or even afraid, we get sick. Why? Because there's not enough energy to keep fighting off these parasitic entities and they multiply. And they take over our space. In other words, they're only able to pervade us, to take us over when we're down. When we're strong, when we're focused, when we're in tune, they, don't, they can't defeat us. That's how Klippa operates. Klippa sits on the periphery and waits to find weakness that it can exploit from Kedusha. Because when exploiting weakness from Kedusha, it's not forced to acknowledge its dependency because Kedusha couldn't possibly be weak. And the Maimodim say that there are two basic possibilities where Klippa can get his life from. They're called in Hebrew Makif Ha'elyin or Chitanias Ha'makif and in Hebrew Tzimtzumim. Which means they can either get from the very highest levels or they can get from the very lowest levels. The highest level, Ein Sof, Keser, or specifically Chitanias Ha'keser, is infinite. What is infinity about? Infinity is about no distinction. If everything is infinite, there's no differences between one thing and another. So the Pasuk says, darkness and light are identical. On the level of Insaf, the level higher than order and form and direction and focus and purpose, the kids love to say, it's all good. I, I, the expression really bothers me because unfortunately it's very far from all good. In the realm of the Insaf, everything is good because everything is infinite. So Klippa, wishes to draw from that incredibly lofty source because there's no accountability. If you have an infinite pot and I pull out a glass of water, who, who notices? Who misses it? What difference does it make? It's immaterial. It's infinite. And Klippa knows that and it tries to draw from this Makif Ha'elyin. Alternatively, Klippa also wants to draw from what's called the Ribat the very bottom of Kedusha, the lowest end. Kedusha has many, many levels. And of course, when you go to lower and lower levels of Kedusha, the energy is diminished more and more and more. Klippa wants to find the place where Kedusha is so weak that it can attach itself and draw from that source without having to acknowledge and submit because of its dependency. In a general way, these two ideas of Klippa trying to draw from an infinite source because infinity is not going to notice, so to speak, and drawing from the very bottom of Kedusha, where it's so weak that it can leech, can be divided in a historic context. The Chazal tell us 
Hani Chavov Kilielim Chasta Kineged Mi. Every Shabbos we recite Psalm, I think it's 136 or 137. 26 Psukim. It's called Halal HaGadol, the Great Halal. 26 times you say Kili Oilam Chasta, because God's kindness is Lioilam. Everybody translates Lioilam as everlasting. I'd like to translate Lioilam as to the world. It's focused and measured for the world to be able to receive it. So the Gemara says, Hani Chavav Kili Oilam Chasta Kineged Mi, and the answer is, Kineged Chavav Deiris, Shenizeinim Echasta Shalakadish Baruchu. It corresponds to the 26 generations that were sustained from, the, from God's pure kindness. In other words, from Adam Arishan until the generation of Moshe Rabbeinu, the world lived an unconstrained and unaccountable kindness. And of course, when you add the expression from the Mishnah in Pirkei Kama Erech Apayim Lafonov, how far did Hashem prolong his anger? Erech Apayim. Now, if you're familiar with Kabbalah, you know Erech Apayim is Arech Ampen, which is Keser. And the idea, of course, is that these 26 generations were getting chastay shalak kodesh baruch but chastay from keser elyot, marach apayim from hayid and seidirish tashlus. Once the Torah was given, a man became accountable. And this is a bit complicated, by the way, because after Nayak there was also accountability. There was seven laws of Nayak, but we'll leave that for another time. Klipa has a much more difficult time drawing from that high source, and it reverts to its other option to draw from the bottom of kedusha. Where kedusha is weak, Klipa wants to attach itself. The current maimer is describing a wrestle. A wrestle that takes place between Yaakov Avinu and Sadish Al-Esav. Esav's Malach. It says in the Pasuk, Kiserisa imelekim v'emanosh. Yaakov Avinu on this fateful day, and it was certainly a fateful day, wrestles elekim v'anoshim, God and man. He, he wrestles the angel of Esav, and he wrestles, figuratively speaking, with the physical Esav. And he defeats them both. Vatuchal. He conquers them both. He manages to uh, suppress the Malach of Esav and he manages to manipulate and to quiet, to pacify, to bribe the physical Esav. This was an incredible day, an incredible achievement, a great feat. Yaakov Avinu is described in the Torah as being terribly afraid of the encounter and by the help and grace of God he succeeds on both fronts. First he meets the angel only afterwards does he meet, meet the physical person. And of course, like it says in Svarim, that when he met the physical person, he was no longer nearly as afraid, because once he dealt with the angel, the physical brother of his he can handle. But he had a double encounter. He met with the Malach of Esau, and then he meets the physical Esau. And they wrestle. And the wrestles interpreted, mystically speaking, as they're fighting over life. Esau's Malach wants to take something from Yaakov, you know, and Yaakov does not want to let him take it. Rashi says that they were fighting over Pacham Ketanim. Small little jugs. Yaakov went across the Mavar Yabek one more time to pick up some outstanding jugs and that's when he meets the Malach. And of course in Kisri Arizal, these Pacham Ketanim are referred to as the Nitutze Kedusha, the last remaining sparks that remain before Mashiach. The smallest and tiniest sparks of holiness and Esau's Malach says, you know, you got so much, let me have the crumbs. And Yaakov says, I'm not going to give you one crumb. I'm taking everything and bringing it to God Almighty. Everything is brought to Kedusha. And for those who are familiar with the Chabad lexicon, the Chabad Rabbeim of the last several generations, have repeatedly indicated that what's left for us to elevate in terms of godly sparks is the same Pachem Ketanim we read about in Pashas Vayechov. These tiny little drugs, the, uh, crumbs of the Tzitzit Kedush need to be elevated. And Yaakov and Esav wrestle. And Yaakov refuses to budge. And Esav's Malach finally hits him in the thigh. 
And our Malach analyzes, our Maimed, I'm sorry, analyzes what's transpiring. And last week, we discussed the idea that Klippa cannot draw from a place of total Bittal. It can only draw from a place where the Bittal has been diminished. And therefore, the Maimah said, Esav's Malach knows that he'll never be able to draw life or sustenance to itself from what's called in Kabbalah Moichen, from the mind of Kedusha. Because the brain, the mind is the place of the deepest humility, the deepest bittel to Hashem, the greatest place of recognition to God Almighty is in the human mind, is in the mind. Now of course, many feel that the human mind is the seat of the great ego, but according to Teda, that's not true. The, a, a truly functional mind is a humble being because he's always hungry for more, always thirsty for more knowledge. But the mind's humility, the mind's bittel, the mind's quiescence, the mind's depth, makes it something that people will not even attempt to wrestle with. But emotions, because emotions have a certain measure of demonstration, demonstrativeness, even good emotions, the noise of the emotion, the passions of those emotions, can always have aspects that are not so perfect. When a person is very passionate, what happens? They're frequently intolerant of others. Klippa loves that. Because it leeches off that. It gets its chayas from that. There's, a, there's an incredible story with the Helika of al that one Shabbos afternoon, a Yid came into the Baal Shem Tev. And if I recall correctly, he had been released from prison or some kind of a dungeon recently. And the Baal Shem Tev asked him if he had any, in, anything interesting to relate about his experience in this dungeon. And he said, yeah, yeah, he said that near where he was being held, there were these, these beings, these people, who acted very, very strange, he said. He said, all week they were very, very happy. As they got closer and closer to Shabbos, they would get sadder and sadder. And they would begin to cry and mourn and lament. And the minutes before Shabbos, they'd be hysterically in pain. And suddenly, they'd begin to laugh. And they would laugh and celebrate, they'd laugh and celebrate all through Shabbos, through the beginning part of the week. And as the week got closer to Friday, their mourning would intensify and Friday afternoon they'd be in a terribly mournful state and the moments right before Shabbos they would burst into laughter this cycle repeated itself week after week after week he had no idea who these people were so the Baal Shem Tev explained that there is a parosh a holy man a big tzaddik who fasts me Shabbos to Shabbos he fasts from Friday to Friday doesn't eat anything Friday afternoon right before Shabbos he breaks his fast on a warm cup of milk Every Friday, there are a group of evil spirits, life forces that are not positive, come to this tzaddik and using whatever means necessary, affect that the glass of milk should spill. And when the milk spills, this man becomes angry. And from this man's caste, they have chayas a whole week. They live a whole week. If this man would not get angry, they would die. So each week, as it gets closer to Friday, they're closer to their own demise. So they cry and they mourn. But when it comes to the moments before Shabbos, and this tzaddik is about to drink his glass of milk, they're in a hysterical state, until somehow they manage to manipulate the glass into falling, and this tzaddik gets angry and they have life for another week, so they laugh and they celebrate. So the Helikah Baal Shem Tev 
explains the story that this Yid had repeated, and one of the people in the room passes out, because he realized that the Bashantav was talking about him. He, in fact, fasts Mishabbos or Shabbos, and every Friday afternoon, he ends his fast by drinking warm milk, and it spills, and he gets angry, and he, he appreciates what he was achieving. That's how Klippa lives from Kedusha. But it has to live from the, the periphery of Kedusha, but Kedusha is not doing so well. The first place where the beginning of the vulnerability of Kedusha allows for Klippa even to contemplate, to draw from, is emotions. Because the, the passion of emotions can have a negative fallout. I just told you a story about anger, but when a person is passionate about Avodah Hashem, he's also angry at people who are not as religious as he. But when you're a zealot, you become very intolerant of other people, and it can bring you into Midas Royce. Your piety can have very direct, very obvious ill effects. That's what Klippa lives from. So we learned last week that Klippa, Esau's Malach is wrestling with Yaakov Avinu, not trying to draw energy from the mind of Yaakov, which is the place of the deepest middle, but from the passions and the emotions of Yaakov Avinu, and he fails. This week, we're going to entertain further this endeavor of Klippa to draw from Kedusha. And we're going to read two ideas in as much as Klippa is drawing from Kedusha. The first is the concept of Makef Elion that I mentioned earlier, that Klippa tries to draw from the Ein Sof, when something is infinite, nothing matters, there's nothing to be concerned with, and so forth. The second idea we're going to learn tonight is about Klippa drawing from the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, from, from the Ribitim Tzumim. But we will leave a third concept for next class, a third idea, and, I, and I'm very happy that I was given the time to divide this up into three classes, I can properly teach it. So I'd like to turn your attention to page to line 27. And let's, uh, so to speak, regroup. Let's focus. The issue is that Klippa wants to live. What does it mean Klippa wants to live? I want to take from God, deny my dependency. How can I do that? I either draw from a place of infinity where nothing is of importance, or I draw from the very weakness in Kedusha that because of its vulnerability and weakness, I'm able to take from there without having to concede uh, that dependency. And the Rebbe speaks about these two ideas separately. Number one, Klippa's efforts at drawing from Makav Elian. Line 27, the Pasuk says, Klippa wishes to raise himself up like an eagle. It's a Pasuk. It's an allusion to evil. Evil soars in the sky like an eagle. Every time Hasidus brings this allusion, that Klippa raises himself up like an eagle, there's, a, there's an intent, there's a meaning. And the intent is found in Titan chapter 29, near the end of the chapter, where the Alter Rebbe says something very powerful, very extreme. The Alter Rebbe says as follows, Good and evil, Kedusha and Klippa, are light and darkness. Light and darkness have never ever engaged in a struggle. Light and darkness cannot fight, because they are not two forces. They are a force and the lack of a force, that's all. When light emerges, darkness vanishes, because there is no such thing as darkness, it's a lack of light. Similarly, good and evil are not two forces. Evil is simply a lack of good. Now you go tell that to a person who's struggling. It's, it's, it's a very powerful position. This is an extreme position. This is a Hasidic position. This is a mystical position. Except for one thing, says the Tanya. There's only one power 
that Klippa has beyond being just the absence of light. And that is the power of suggestion, of provocation. In other words, Klippa knows how to posture. Klippa knows how to bluff. Klippa knows how to appear real. If a person is not impressed by that and denies it, they see that they were fighting with nothing. If, on the other hand, the person is drawn into the bluff, into the posture, into the suggestion, Klippa now has energy. It's your energy. It's the energy from Kedusha. It's the energy of the person. So Klippa's only power is to come to you and provoke you, suggest to you. When you buy into the provocation, into the suggestion, the energy of Klippa becomes Kedusha, becomes you. That phenomena is called Tagbiya Kanesha. The bluff, the posturing of Klippa. And any time a person defeats his Yetzirah, he realizes he was fighting with nothing. Any time a person is defeated by his Yetzirah, he's convinced that there was no way in the world that could have possibly defeated it. They raise themselves with disrespect and haughtiness and empty pride to posture, to draw from the higher end of Kedusha. They wish to access the Ein Sof, the Makaf Elyon, the Kama Erech Apayim Lafonov. Since it's infinite, darkness and light are equal, so Kedusha doesn't even pay attention. The Inyan Chutz Bezu, the significance of this disrespect, on high, he shareits him leinik me'edin sof baruchu. The wish to be sustained, to nurse remains sof. without having to show dependency on kedusha. In other words, not having to be humble before their creator. Shehi, because if klipa would get life from kedusha, it would be hamshachas abitul. There would have to be a bitul of subservience to the creator. Hanimshach al yedei yisrael, which is of course brought down through the Jewish nation. Ki mizeh ein lehem yunika. They can't possibly draw. From Kedusha and Kedusha's bittel, rak only from behind the skin of the feminine aspect. In other words, in the very, very lowest levels of Kedusha, can Klippa draw, as we'll see uh, later on. But if it doesn't want to get from the very bottom of the barrel, from what's called the Ribbitzim Tzumim, but from Makav Elyon has only one choice. They wish to draw out of themselves Ein Saf Mamish. Shalafana, which is before God, as it says in the Pasuk, light and darkness are identical. In the realm of infinity, if you draw a cup of something out of the infinite barrel, it will remain just as infinite as it was before. When you talk about the Ein Saf, there is no such thing as adequate bittel. Because im tzadat of a gamer, the most righteous person is undeserving. Vegam shmam is at the same time an insect can be behechli melech in a royal palace because in a place of infinity no good is good enough and no evil is paid attention to. Omisham yilham yunika klipa is hoping to draw life to itself from this very very lofty level and have abundant a rich source of life without having to submit to the Abishtir. And again, the way it's explained in Hasidus, this was primarily the case until Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah. That Klippa should draw life without having to pass through through the path of holiness through the cracks, the crevices and cracks and thin channels of Kedusha but rather from the Yen So the first proposal, the first effort that Klippa endeavors to use as a means of drawing life to itself is to draw from the Ein Sof where nothing matters and if it can take whatever it wishes. But it doesn't work out. Havaya says, I will lower that ego from its soaring into the sky. I will punch a hole 
into the balloon and all the air will escape. How? Because of Havaya. Now this is very interesting. Havaya is Hishtalshlus. Havaya is Atzilus. Havaya is lower than the Yain Saf. And of course higher than Nibit Simtumim. Havaya goes on Adam, on the supernal man. And of course everything you have in the supernal man, you have a microcosm of it in the actual man, in, in people. In a human being, there is an idea that above the limitations of a person, there is an infinity, and beneath the limitations of a person, there is waste. Klippa wants to draw from one of those two sources. Adam is in between. Adam is lower than the Yain Saf. It's lower than the Kashech However, if Adam can be focused, if Adam can be intensely dedicated to its task, he will draw all the Kedusha from higher than itself in the Lashna Hasidus to go only to go to Kedusha and not to go away to Klippa. Havaya is actually lower than the Yain Saf. Because it represents the same chain reaction of worlds where things are limited and contained. And with the power of Havaya, this Nesha, this Klippa that wishes to draw from the Yain Saf is thrown down. Because the order of Ishtash and Simpson affects the Ein Saf, which is higher than Ishtashul, should also be drawn only into a Pneumiastic method. In other words, that Ein Ein Saif Baruch Hashayda, the Ein Saf will not rest, El Bisha Batachol, something which is bottle. Hard for me to explain, and I've never seen a proper Moshal in Hasidus, but I'll tell you my own Moshal. And anytime you use your own Moshal, you're, you're really making a mistake. I, take it or leave it. If you have water coming down a mountain through a bunch of different little channels, and then you have a very powerful flow of a river, let's say, or a unified body of water. The tendency of water is dveikus, is to be drawn together. One little stream and a second little stream would like to join and become a larger stream, or a creek, and so forth. When Kedusha is strong, the energy which is coming from above itself becomes focused through that channel. When the energy of Kedusha is weak, the light and life which is coming from above that channel just trickles in all different directions. Klippa wants to draw from higher than Kedusha. If Kedusha, which is lower than the Ein Saf, is strong and focused, it will gather that Ein Saf into its focus. And Klippa will never be able to be sustained. And that's what it says here. Klippa hopes to get, first of all, from Makif Elyon, if the Kedusha, which is lower than the Makif Elyon, called Havaya, is with focus, with clarity, Klippa cannot live from it. The effort to bring Kedusha into focus, so then in Saf, which is higher than Kedusha, should also be brought into that focus, and Klippa should not be able to draw from that higher source. Is It depends on our service. It requires the human being, Yankov Avinu. Yankov Avinu creates Ishtashos. Yankov Avinu is Adam. In the Lashaf and the Gemara, Yankov Avinu is the main Shufet, Adam Edishan. Yankov is in the image of Adam Edishan, the first man. Adam Edishan, of course, is in the image of God. Yankov Avinu, therefore, is Adam. He creates order and focus. Although order and focus is limited, but because there's an intensity that order and focus, the Ein Saf, which is higher than order and focus, is brought into focus as well. The Hainu. That the Ein Saf, which is higher than Kedusha, should be brought into the harness and focus of Adam of Kedusha Dafke. And this, of course, requires Aidei Bittl Vacholu, you have to have Bittl, and Klippa won't be able to sustain itself. So, the first effort of Klippa is to draw from Makifa Elyin from Ein Saf, 
bypassing Kedusha altogether, Yaakov can't compete with that because Yaakov is lower than it. But Yaakov creates a focus on his level. And the focus that Yaakov creates on his level automatically draws the Yitzhak, which is higher than Kedusha, into the focus of Kedusha, and Klippa cannot live. When Kedusha is weak, so then the Ein Tzav, which is higher than Kedusha, of course, scatters in all different directions. And that, of course, is what Klip is hoping for. This explains the Pasuk, man wrestled with Yaakov Avinu. In other words, Klippa's desire to raise itself up like a soaring eagle is described as a wrestle, as a fight with Kedusha. Klippa is higher than Kedusha. Kedusha can't compete, but Kedusha can focus. And when Kedusha focuses, Klippa falls to pieces. You know, you have in the Rebbe Sichas, based on the Zayar, that says that Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid of Pare. Moshe Rabbeinu was afraid of the Pharaoh. Because the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh comes from Tanina Godla Levis Vitech Yerev, comes from a higher level than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is Ma, Adam, Hishtashalus, order, focus. Pare is Padian Kol Nohedan, an infinite light. And Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, Boyel Pare. Says to Zayar, Boy, come with me to Pare. The focus of Kedusha can harness and can suppress even the infinity of, of, of itself, which is higher than itself. This is method one. Method one is Klippa wishes to draw from Kedusha's Makifa Elyon. Kedusha cannot deal with that directly. Kedusha can only deal with that indirectly. Kedusha's focus ends Klippa's efforts at drawing from that higher source. But then there's the other possibility. That Klippa wants to draw from the very bottom of Kedusha. In this Maimed Abaisai, the effect or the effort of Klippa to draw from the bottom of Kedusha will be described in two ideas that are called Zah the Klippa and Malchus the Klippa. If you look on line 65 and 66, he says, Dechar the Klippa, Shekeneged Zah and Malchus the Klippa, two levels. We're only going to learn the first idea. For our, with, the, with, the, with the help and grace of God, <coughs> we'll leave the last idea, which is called Malchus, and look for the Klippa, Mitzvah for next class. But this is a new concept. Klippa realizes it cannot draw from Kedusha directly by circumventing, by getting around Kedusha. So now wants to draw from the bottom of Kedusha. How do you draw from the bottom of Kedusha? You diminish Kedusha. What is the beginning of the diminution of Kedusha? Excite him. Now, excitement sounds like a good thing. But the demonstrative and external display of excitement is a compromise compared to depth and focus. And Klippa knows if he can rouse Kedusha into passions for Hashem, ultimately those passions will become anger or temptation and that's where he'll find his life. And this is the second idea Klippa wants to draw from Kedusha by drawing Kedusha out, by getting Kedusha to, to be less deep and more pronounced and more demonstrative. He knows that if Kedusha is loud enough at the very edges there will be negative aspects from which he will be able to sustain himself without having to acknowledge that dependency upon HaKadosh Baruch Line 39 Vihine Yaakov Mufchash Abavaz Yaakov is the choice of all the others V'ha'avet Heinei Makavaz Obviously we're a chariot for God Almighty and a chariot means Bittel Ta'ashem and the Ein Saf rests and in the case of the Ovis they were chariot for the Bechinas of Chesed Gevura Teferis the Ovis are not Chochma Bina Das, they're Chesed Givorot Teferes. Which means they're totally bottled to Hashem, but bottled to Hashem on an emotional level. And Klippa thinks, ah, great place to start. Since the Ovis are so bottled to the Ebesh that I can't leech. But since the nature of the Bittal is passion, if I can create demonstrative passion, external passion, loud passion, soft call soft, at the very edges, I can live. Says the Rebbe Shebebchin, as Bittal me. 
Atzmai, when you talk about the intense bit, the Hainu Bechines Chabad, where the idea of the mind is on the table, when you talk about the intellectual dimension where total bitl exists, Ein Lehemachi, the Chul, they don't stand a chance. El Bechagas, but beginning with the higher emotions. Shein Mid is which are the measure of passionate expressions. Ha, his spilus, that's reactionary, that's combustible. Min ha rather than being quiet and battle to the Yebishter. Visham hu achiz azel that's what Klippa hopes to draw life. The chad de Klippa the masculine aspect of Klippa corresponds to the masculine action of Kedusha, the passions of Kedusha, Klippa hopes will sustain itself. And again, I told you on line 65 and on, we're going to be talking about Nukva de Klippa, but now we're talking about Zadek Klippa, Mashenkin Bechabad. On the level of Kedusha, which is the Madreg of Chabad, Klippa knows doesn't even stand the chance. Now, it's really a little bit hard to know with certainty the Maimah's intent. When it says Mashenkin Bechabad, does that mean that the Ovis also had a Chabad and the Chabad of the Ovis is untouchable? Or the Ovis were only Chagas and other Nishomis who are on the covered level of Chabad are untouchables? I, I think the former is true. But the Maimir is too vague for me to have clarity about it. So Kedusha no, Klippa knows it can only draw from Kedusha from the point where Kedusha is passionate. But on the levels where Kedusha is beyond passion where the Bittal is deep and quiet it doesn't stand a chance. Shekola Makif Memibina All indirect presence is from Bina. V'hamakif an indirect presence of Godliness who Deichel HaChitenim pushes away Klippa or Kavuvor Mehechal says in Kabbalah on the level of Makif, there's no Klippa. Rakanegis Klippa exists only on the emotional level and down. Not the Holy of Holies, which is the place of Chabad. In other words, I may say, the mind is the key to the soul. In this Maimed, the mind is the seat of Bittl, of subservience, the Bittl Ta'akadosh Baruch. Klippa doesn't even try. Klippa looks for weakness. Remember last week's story, Rab Ye Gornisht, Taka Gornisht. In the realm of Kedusha, doesn't stand a chance. So he hopes to draw from the periphery, from the edge, from the very, very bottom. The beginning of the bottom is the emotions, because the intellect is too quiet and deep. The choice of words is that the intellect, from where Kedusha can draw nothing, is makif. Klippa knows, if I want to live, I have to find weakness. The beginning of weakness is demonstration. On the level which is higher than demonstration, Klippa knows it doesn't stand a chance. This higher than demonstration, this quiescence, this depth, this primius, is called makif. Makif normally means hidden. In this case, makif means focused and disengaged. So I want you to do me a favor and look at line 47. I'm going to go back, but look at 47. Look how he translates the word makif, the end of the line. Bebchinas makif. What does makif mean? Hainu she'enei nigbal bakli. It's not contained in a vessel, and therefore shudavar kayim la'adet lasts forever. If you want to know what Klippa understands about the mind of Kedusha and its bitl, and that it's futile for it to even attempt to draw life from there, because the mind of Kedusha is makif. Makif means those two ideas. It's not contained by a vessel, and um, it lasts forever. So the idea that a person's mind is a suit, is a uh, a, is a vessel, is a reciprocal for um, Kedusha is because it's not in any way contained within a vessel. All I want to say on this is that the word makif as it's used here is not 
how it's normally used. Because makif means Makif means I don't care. Makif here means I can touch you, but you can't touch me back. It's like Here Makif is engaged. The mind creates a bitl klipa can't touch it. But why can't Klippa touch it? Because Kedusha, Makif is touching the person, but it can't be touched back because it's disengaged. So the word Makif here is deeper, I think, than it's normally intended. Be that as it may, getting back to the mind, line 44 now. Klippa knows it doesn't stand a chance against the Moyach of Kedusha. So it tries to appeal to the Leif. For you, Venzei, it's other than the example of this being a human being. That you daven. When you daven, you're passionate. But when you daven, your passion has focus. And Klippa doesn't stand a chance. But, when you finish davening, much of the excitement and passion diminishes. It doesn't go away altogether, but its focus is diminished. Because the love and passion one experiences when one davens is focused and excited. It's energized. It's primius. And you know what primius means? That just like it came, it can go. Skip the parenthesis. When one davens, there's a passion that's focused. And one finishes davening, that passion subsides because it's an inya pnimi. What is pnimi? Pnimi means that it has a keli, and pnimi means that any kaim lad. When the davening is over, a person walks out of the base of Medish or the shul and sees that there is a world, suddenly he's got new temptations. And like I told you on previous occasions, that Hasidus says that often a person can go from a very intense and passionate davening and fall steeply into taivus, into lust. What's the connection between davening and lust? The answer is passion and passion. The passion of Kedusha spills over into the passion of the Yumazeb when its focus is lost. And the passions themselves don't have the power to push away klipa. If the push away klipa, you have to be makif. Makif means indirect. Makif means the mind. The makif is very focused, but focused without a vessel, without a containment and a limit. And therefore, it's not limited to a vessel, and therefore, it should have a last forever. Forgive me, but I'm not going to explain it. But the point is that when you're talking about the level of the mind, since the mind is engaged in a disengaged way, it affects without being affected. It's without a vessel, so it can touch you, you cannot touch it back. From that level, Klippa stands no chance, it's Makif. Which is why by the engagement of the Jewish people and Amalek, the Pasuk says, never forget. Because if you remember, in other words, if you engage the mind, Klippa is dead already. Forgetfulness is the lack of clarity of the Meichen of Abba, of Chochmah. When the mind of Chochmah is diminished, then you have, on the, low, the level of human emotions, passion, demonstration, And Klippa is able to draw Chayas. What remained is a much lower level of intellect called Yenika. That's what Klippa can draw. So Klippa wrestles with Yankov Avinu. What is Klippa doing in wrestling with Yankov Avinu? He's trying to access the heart of Yankov Avinu. And you, know, you all know the story. He failed. He was only able to access the thigh, which in Kabbalah language is the Nihi, the lowest level of Yankov. We'll see it momentarily. Line 52, Vezehu Vayavik, it's a new translation of the word Vayavik. On the previous page, Vayavik, 
meant that it wanted to raise itself up. Here, Vayavik means Roshachibuk. He hugged. He came together with. How do you hug with your arms? And what do we know about the arms? The arms represent the emotions. And the reason Esav's Malach and Yankovino are wrestling with their arms because this is the seat of contention, the level of the human emotion. The angel of Esav embraces Yankovino with his hands, which is Chesed Degvura, the Malach, which we only identify as the Samach Mem, embraced. It's good for the yank of the body of Yank, they'll appeal to make him fall. In the hope, to draw the heart of Yank of Avinu to itself. The passions of Kedushu would change the passions of the Umazeh, and he would have life. The emotions of the animal soul shall become a garment. As Nefesh will kiss the emotions of the divine soul, because they want to diminish our passion for God Almighty and redirect the passions of the Neshama towards animalism. There is no way the passions of a Jew and Avedis Hashem can sustain Klippa unless when the mind, specifically the mind of Chochmah, is disengaged. But if the person's brain is strong and focused, the emotions have the depth and the integrity of the mind, then Klippa doesn't stand a chance. And he brings one of the most familiar Vartetis. Everybody knows this. It's a Drosh of Allah Chazrin. And it says in the Jewish people have many needs and their minds are narrow. So Hasidus interprets, Pirush, why is it that Jewish people have many needs? When the mind is diminished, people have so many desires, so many disparate desires, so many separate desires. The one who separates from the wants desires. When a person is focused, on life, they're also focused on what's important, and automatically they're not focused on what's less than important. But when you have daitam ktsara, people like that focus, all of a sudden they have a million needs. And Esav is hoping to draw from Yankov's emotions, which is Yankov's level, highest to itself. Line 58, fails. You know why Esav fails? Because there's something he doesn't know about Yankov Avinu. Yankiv may be the emotions, but he's, left, he's linked to Chochmah. The word Yaakov denotes the Yud, which comes along with the heel. There's a little bit of Chochmah, which manifests from Yankiv Avinu into the emotions. The source of Atzilus. Yankiv who? Yankiv is the one Jehim, Originally, the levels of Makiv were in Lovin's possession because he was drawing from Ribit from Makiv Elliot. Now, Yankav Avinu draws it all into Kedusha. Well, the love and Shtei Bonis. And of course, the two daughters of Lovin, which are Leia and Rachel. Leia is Bina. Rachel is Malchus. They represent the various emotional levels of Atzilos. V'yachiv Havcham the Kedusha V'chol. He transforms them into Kedusha. And moreover, V'nim Shakam B'mintei Sebechin is Bittl M'mech and Abba in Yankav Avinu's emotions. As represented by Leia and Rachel, the emotions are quieted. So Klippa thinks, Esav's Malach thinks, I'll embrace Yankiv's heart, and he's wrong. Because although Yankiv looks like he's a level of emotion, he's connected to Chochmah, which brings a bitl into the emotions. And therefore, line 61, V'layochel and Geyer couldn't touch. Rak v'kafeyerech the thigh, which goes on the Nehi, Shehu ha'shpomimena luchutz. It's the idea that the Neshama is bringing to the outside. Shesham ha'oras ha'bitl mu'etis. The measure of bitl in the lowest levels is very diminished. The, the, the kidneys are the source of the 
the making physical, the spiritual life and light and energy associated with, with seed, with zera. And in as much as that is concerned, it's a mashpia klapechutz, like your seed is mashpia to the outside. That was the mistake of the samachmem. He thought Yankov was only in the level of emotions. And since Yankov was only in the level of emotions, it was always in the Madriga of Merkava for the Abishta. He thinks to draw. Avobem is to be sure, Shadish Yaakov, this root of Yankov Avinu, Vyasidas in his foundation of Bahadri Kadesh, the holy mountain, which goes on Chokhmah Law, Yasid Abba, Mechazikarn, and that's why Asa fails. Asa fails because he thinks he can draw from the emotions of Yankov Avinu, and even the emotional level of Yankov Avinu is quieted by something higher than the emotions. Line 65, Everything we just described exists on two levels of the encounter of Kedusha and Klippa. First of all, the masculine aspect of Klippa, and in Mitzvah next we're going to learn Malchus the Klippa, which corresponds to um, the feminine aspect of Klippa, which corresponds to Malchus. Well,